Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is episode two of our mini-series called Freak Ships of the 19th Century. Now, you will have learned from episode one that this series is based on a fabulous pamphlet that was written in 1966 by a chap called Jay Guthrie who worked for Lloyd's Register and created this booklet, as it says on the title page, for private circulation amongst the staff only. It presents what it describes as unorthodox ships, rebels from tradition and freaks of the nautical world, which throughout the whole of the 19th century attained transient fame or notoriety before disappearing from the scene forever. Episode one was on monitors in which we heard a little from the pamphlet and then went on to hear from Andrew Chung, a curator at the National Maritime Museum, who indeed knows a great deal about monitors. And today we are looking at circular ships. Let's start by hearing a little from dear old Jay Guthrie to see how he introduces these vessels. The circular ships have always been associated with the Russian Vice Admiral Popov and came to be known as Popovkas, little Popovs, or occasionally as Cyclads, a mongrel mixture of Greek kuklos, a circle, and ironclad. The Admiral, however, freely admitted he had obtained the idea of a completely circular ship from John Elder, the Glasgow shipbuilder, in 1861. Whatever the origin, these vessels were designed for the defence of Russia's Black Sea coasts, regions of shallow water with a limited draught of 13 feet. The vessels were to be heavily armed and armoured, and the conventional battleship of the day, the monitor type, would require a very deep draught with this specification. The first Popovka, the Novogrod, was built at St. Petersburg, dismantled and rebuilt at Nikolaev on the Black Sea in 1873. The second vessel, Vice Admiral Popov, was launched in 1875 and was somewhat larger than the prototype. The vessels were shaped somewhat like a pocket watch, being quite flat on the bottom but fitted with 12 keels 8 inches deep, running in a fore and aft direction, although whether these were for directional stability or for docking purposes is not made clear. If the former, they failed lamentably, as the rudder had very little control over the steering, the vessel tending to skid sideways under helm hard over. 
The Popovkas were similar in internal arrangement, there being a cellular double bottom with a large number of side tanks. The main hull contained the machinery, bunker and storerooms, as well as the magazine, while the crew's quarters were in a casing above deck. The business end of the vessel, the revolving turret, containing the guns, was situated in the centre, and it too was heavily armoured. The machinery was housed in two entirely separate engine rooms, each containing three compound horizontal main engines and two boiler rooms, each with four boilers. There were thus six screws abreast, and control of each was brought together to one central position. Also, it was sometimes found necessary to steer by means of the outboard screws. The propellers were 10 foot 6 inches diameter, and their pitch varied according to position, being 10, 11 and 12 feet from centre outwards. Some of my colleagues may consider the idea of circular ships as funny and most unpractical, yet those who hail from Liverpool may recall that in 1866, the Liverpool-Birkenhead Ferry Boat Company proposed setting up a system of circular ferry steamboats, worked by a chain across the Mersey, the ferry engaging in a U-shaped pier, whereby passengers and traffic could be discharged and loaded along one half of the deck circumference. Now, to get a modern historian's take on what was going on with these circular ships, I spoke with the one man who knows more about Russian ships than pretty much anyone else, Stephen McLaughlin. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. And so here is the excellent Steve. Stephen, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, I love this idea of freak ships, and I should say that we haven't titled it Freak Ships, have we? We're basing this off a, a document that, um, that was made, um, I think, in the early 20th century by an archivist at the Lloyd's Register Foundation. Now, you have read this document called Freak Ships, have you not, Stephen? Yes, I have. Yeah, and what did you think of it? Uh, I think it was, a, it was a very interesting and wide-ranging exploration of very strange ships. Yeah. Um, and why do you think such unorthodox, uh, unconventional ships are worth studying? Well, it's always, it's always a good idea, I think, in any field to study the unusual, the outliers, um, because there, there's usually some value in them that uh, even if their main task didn't work out, you know, if their main purpose didn't work out quite as intended, they usually introduce some interesting new ideas. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose a lot of people think that the world doesn't admire failures. I'm not like that. I do admire failures. And uh, even just looking at these ships, the amount of energy and, and I think flat out genius that went into designing and then building them um, certainly must not be forgotten. Um, I mean, even as I, as I say that, it makes you realise how much is lost to us now. And we have you know, a drawing of a strange ship. But do you, how do you possibly imagine all of the extra work that's been lost? I don't think you can. I mean, I've one of the things that I've always, uh, as a sidelight, enjoyed is, is ships that were never built uh, or designs that were proposed but never carried out. And, and so many of them are lost. You see this passing reference to a, a particular design that somebody came up with and there's nothing left. It, you know, the, the documentation is gone. There's just this passing reference. And it's, it's kind of frustrating. I want to see it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are some wonderful models out there that we can, we can look at. But I do, I would, you know, if there's a one kind of point you could recreate a moment in the past, it's when someone walked into a room full of shipbuilders with the new drawings <laughs> for his ship and said, right, guys, um, it's going to be circular. Uh, what? <laughs> and there's no, 
you know, there's no infrastructure. There's, there's nothing. Nothing is there to, to to cope with these crazy plans. Yeah. And, and of course, you've got to overcome the inherent conservatism, which which is a reasonable thing. You know, you're designing ships to go to sea. It's kind of a dangerous and chancy environment. So you don't want to take a sudden radical step that's never been tried before. So these guys are sitting there saying, what the heck is this thing this guy's proposing? Um, and it's not unreasonable. And yet there may be something in it that has to be explored. Yeah. I suppose some of them were built to maybe prove a point or to test a theory. And now a lot of we lose a lot of that, don't we? Because we could do so much with 3D modeling. Yeah, I think that's very true. I mean, it used to be that you'd have to spend hours laboring over a drafting table, um, doing calculations by hand. And now a lot of that's been automated. Yeah. Can you set the scene for us then um, about the period we're talking about? You know, what's going on in sea power? Who's got the big navies? What are people trying to achieve? Well, of course, the Royal Navy is the largest navy, um, which creates a problem for every other navy. Uh, you know, how do you counter the, the Royal Navy if they come looking for you? And um, there's the, the technological background is that, you know, we suddenly have iron and steam. And you can see just from the ships that were built in the period that that suddenly people were saying, we don't have to build the same kind of ships we've already built. We can change hull forms. We can change the shape of a ship. Um, we can put armor on it. We can, you know, put the propellers underwater. We don't need masts and sails. And so they're experimenting with all these wonderful new possibilities. And especially in, you know, in the early days of it, you see this explosion of of well freak ships or at least freak proposals in some cases yeah what about um the sort of the power of the armament how would how would that change in this this period in the 19th century well you saw a radical change in the way um ships were armed because you know you apply armor and then somebody says well if we if this guy's got armor we have to have a larger gun to penetrate it so the armor has to get thicker and the guns have to get bigger and you saw this race between guns and armor that went on through, you know, right up till the First World War, um, you know, with, with the armor being improved or thickened. And then you get ships like HMS Inflexible, which had this tiny area of really thick armor to protect the most vital portions as a response to the fact that the guns were getting so powerful that you couldn't keep the shells out of the whole ship. You had to choose what you were going to defend against the heaviest shells. So you had... You know, in addition to these possibilities that iron introduced, you also had these difficulties that were created by the fact that ships suddenly could had, you know, had to carry bigger and bigger guns and more and more armor. Hmm. It's distinctive as well that the, the guns become fewer and fewer in number, don't they? Yeah. No, you look at, you know, you look at HMS Victory, you've got 100 guns. Um, you look at HMS Inflexible, you've got four guns. So... You know, there's 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 a radical a change in just how ships are armed. Mm. And what are they trying to do there? Just re rely on the fact that you could fire further and with a more more powerful weapon. Yeah. Or you can, can you not have that many big guns on a ship? Well, you simply, I mean, you can't have too many big guns, otherwise, you know, the ship becomes huge and unmanageable and unpropellable. Um, so they had to cope with making these difficult choices. Um, and, uh, you know, that also led to ideas like the torpedo, let's attack the ship underneath where it's not protected by armor 
or ramming, you know, which again was this sort of same idea that we can hit the ship where it's most vulnerable. So we moved away from just having the gun to having these possible combinations of armament, gun, torpedo, ram. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of hull form, let's talk about, actually, before we get there, let's talk about the Russians, because I think we're going to end up talking quite a lot about the Russians. What, what were the Russians up to at the minute in terms of sea power? Well, they had lost the Crimean War, um, and their economy was in a mess. They were trying to throw off serfdom, which had, you know, stifled the Russian industrial economy for many years. They were, uh, the young, or the, the, the new emperor, Tsar Alexander II, was a very, you know, liberal figure. He had changed a lot of the policies of the government, and he had appointed as his uh, head of the Navy his younger brother, Nicholas, um, excuse me, um, Konstantin Alexandrovich, um, and he, or Nikolaevich, and he was um, a very liberal and, and, and very interested in technology. So the Russian Navy had at its leadership a guy who was very interested in seeing if there was a way to overcome Russia's technical or, or, and financial backwardness by investing in a few radically new technologies. So he, he saw these possibilities that he hoped the new technology would enable Russia to take advantage of. So where were their their naval bases, their ports? Are we talking? Um, I, I only ask this because obviously you know the Baltic Sea is is uh, creates its own problems as opposed to the Pacific or the Mediterranean or the Atlantic. I mean, were they trying to tick all of these boxes? No. Um, basically, the the Russian naval power at the time was concentrated in the Baltic. That was the largest area. Second to that was the Black Sea, but the Black Sea under the uh, treaties that ended the Crimean War was not to be militarized. The Russians could maintain only a small navy there, a small coast defense type force. They traditionally had had a northern fleet up at areas like Arkhangelsk and um, what would today be Murmansk. But uh, at, the, at that time, that was not seen as a, an area that really needed great defenses. And the Pacific was just written off. There's not much we can do there. And there isn't a really big threat. Uh, at the moment. So we've got to concentrate our limited means, first of all, on the Baltic, where the capital city is located. And we've got to defend that at all costs. And then to a lesser degree in the Black Sea. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. So looking at kind of more local protection, very, very different to the... The, the type of Russian sea power which was wielded for the Battle of Tsushima and things like that. Yes, very different. Yeah. Um, well, who came up with the idea of a circular ship? Who decided that the circular ship was going to be the answer to Russia's problems? Well, it was, it was an interesting process. First, you have to start with John Elder, who proposed circular ships for coast defense um, in around 1860-odd. Um, and, uh, and this idea was out there. And Admiral Popov of the Russian Navy, um, faced with the problem of coming up with a ship that could defend the t- particularly vulnerable areas of the Black Sea, where only limited defense was possible, the uh, the Bug Neiman, the, the the Bug Nipur Liman or estuary, and the Strait of Kerch, he decided that the best thing for this would be to have. Uh, round ships because as he said you know you make the beam wider the length shorter you've got less surface area to defend and you've got a huge carrying power on a shallow draft and to him this seemed ideal for mounting heavy guns on coast defense ships and so he pressed this idea with the head of the navy constantine and with the emperor um, and they eventually sanctioned the idea and uh, they set about building the first iron circular coast defense ship, the Novgorod. Um, and it was actually quite a project for them because there were no real, there was no iron shipbuilding capability in South Russia. So the ships were actually built in St. Petersburg, disassembled, shipped to Nikolaev, today Mikolaev in Ukraine and reassembled, um, and that it was quite a process because there were no rail connections, so things had to be shipped by river. So it was a big job, and um, they undertook it, and they built the ship as sort of a test case, and, um, and it worked. Uh, they, they managed to build it, and um, for its size, it was a very powerful ship armed with two 11-inch rifles, um, and very and particularly heavy armor, so it you know it kind of fulfilled its um, its purpose. Mm. It's unusual to have two guns, isn't it? I'm just thinking here of the monitor with one. Well, it had it had two two guns in one barbette. Uh, yeah. You know, the monitor had two guns in a turret, um, but these were rifled guns, so they were they were probably better penetrators than the smoothbore guns of the monitor, for example, and. Uh, so it was it was a pretty powerful ship for its size. 
What sort of range could these guns fire? Uh, with accuracy, probably a couple of thousand yards. Yeah. Not much more than that. They had a theoretical much greater range, but um, the sighting, the, the fire control just didn't exist to take advantage of that. How do they work in terms of, you know, propulsion and steering? I'm fascinated by this. How do they not just go around in circles? (laughs) Well, that was a good question, and there was a lot of controversy over that. Um, She had six engines connected to six propellers, two on either side. Six separate engines. Six separate engines, six propellers. And that, of course, created problems to start with, because how do you control from one position six engines? Mm. Um, And so they had to work that out. so that was that was a start. That was that was the first level. The second problem, of course, is that you've got this great big blunt hull. Um, it's really not. It's kind of a hydrodynamic nightmare. Um, and so, despite having six engines, the ship never really managed about more than eight knots. Um, and because, unfortunately, the engines had built by a company that was on the downhill slide, there were always quality problems with the en- engines throughout the ship's life. So uh, over time, the ship got slower and slower as more and more defects developed in her machinery. Mm. Um, yeah. But they, they, they work. The, the rudder proved not useless, but not very helpful. Uh, the, but they could be steered by their engines, you know, speed up the port engines, slow down the starboard uh, engine. Yes, kind I of see, thing. Yeah. Um, and under that, they were quite handy. Um, and in fact, uh, she was, um, Edward Reed, the... Uh, former chief constructor of the Royal Navy, visited Novgorod um, because he was a friend of Popov. And they shared a lot of uh, ideas. And um, Reed pointed out that the ship was so nimble um, that she could be spun on her axis until one gets giddy. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it, it could be made to work, um, but it, the speed problem was never really overcome with a, with a round hull form. Mm. How big were they? I mean, I've seen the drawings and I've seen models of them, and it seems very difficult for me to get any kind of sense of scale. They look somewhere between a dinner plate and a UFO, and I, I don't know whereabouts they sit in, the, in that in that scale. Well, Novgorod was just over a hundred feet in diameter, um, mm. so she was, uh, you know, she was pretty large, all things yeah. considered, and. Um, she was about, oh, uh, oh, she displaced about 2,500 tons. Mm. So she was, you know, she was a st- substantial ship, um, but much smaller than contemporary battleships. But she mounted an armament equivalent to at least part of a contemporary battleship. And were they used? I mean, what did they have an operational history to, of any kind of um, decent length? Well, they, they, they hung around for a while. There was a second ship, the Vice-Admiral Popov, named after their inventor, which was larger and carried two 12-inch guns. Um, they were both completed before the Russo-Turkish War in 1877, and they did cruise around a little bit in the Black Sea, um, but they were never used for any offensive purposes. Uh, they, so they never saw combat. Um, they were used mostly to defend the significant ports like Odessa, um, and, uh, but... But they did go to sea, which is something that's been sometimes doubted by uh, some writers. They did go out into the Black Sea. They cruised as far as the mouth of the, uh, the um, Danube River. And so they, you know, they were, 
they were competent ships to a degree. You know, they were not a complete uh, boondoggle. No, it's, that's a very good word, Stephen. <laughs> the, I mean, um, there must have been other nations watching pretty closely what the Russians were attempting. Did did anyone else say, "Well, this is a good idea. Let's let's give it a bash." I am not aware of anybody else trying anything on that scale. I mean, you did have the idea of the short broadships that Edward Reed had come up with, and that was, you know, carried through in some in some subsequent ship designs. But I don't think anybody ever went to the limit as Admiral Popov did by going, you know, well, we'll make the beam the same as the length. Um, so other other navies did invest heavily in monitors of various descriptions and uh, other types of shallow draft, heavily armed coast defense ships, but mm. nobody ever really took on the idea of the of the circular ship. I suppose it's quite easy from that statement to assume that the ships were awful, that they were a failure, that they were a waste of time, that they were a waste of money. Um, is that fair or not? I don't think they were uh, a waste of money. I think they were... They, it, had they been called upon to serve in action, I think they probably would have been able to do so. Um, they, but they were they were kind of a dead end, I think, more than anything else. Um, they were built at a time when you know armor was enormously thick um, because it had to keep out these enormous guns at close ranges, these enormous shells, um, and that you know that was kind of a passing phase. Before long, what you coast you saw coast defense moving into, you know, torpedo boats and submarines. Um, you know, the idea being instead of you know building this you this large, heavily armored, big gunship, will attack by small, nimble vessels that can get in close. You know, launch a devastating weapon like a torpedo and then get out. Uh, so that you know the, the the whole idea of coast defense changed a bit even though you still had coast defense battleships being built. Um, and it is important to keep in mind that the, the Popovkas, the, the, the round ships, were specifically built as coast defense ships. They were never meant to be, you know, seagoing battleships. Mm. So, you know, you have to keep in mind their, their intended purpose when you talk about their success or failure. Yeah. So what we should consider them as like a floating fort. Yeah, pretty much. That was, in fact, that term was used at the time quite frequently. It just happened to be a mobile fort. Yeah. How do you go about studying them? Is there, you know, much surviving in the archives, or or is, are they a bit of a, a dead end for historians as well? Uh, there's actually some. There's some good Russian literature um, on them. Um, there's a few uh, primary sources around, including a uh, uh, something in the um, National Archives in Kew that where um, the Russians actually asked. Rude at Torquay to study the, hull, the round hull forms at higher speeds. And so you've got his report on how round ships handle higher speeds. Um, so there's, there's scattered materials. There's, of course, contemporary reports. Uh, Edward Reed, who visited the Novgorod, published his account of his um, visit to her and what he experienced. Um, so you've got some firsthand accounts. The Russian newspapers at the time were extremely active for and against uh, the Popovkas. Um, they were, it was an age of relatively liberal press freedoms in Russia. And so while you couldn't criticize the emperor, um, 
you could criticize his servants, as it were. And so Popov came in for quite a bit of criticism for his crazy ideas, as one half of the press saw it. Um, and then the other half of the press, you know, sort of said, well, you know, not so much. And it was also a much more open age in terms of military secrets, or rather the lack of military secrets. Um, so that, you know, you, you have accounts published. There were descriptions of the ships published in the transactions of the Institution of Naval Architects um, by a Russian naval constructor. So you, had, you have a, a pretty wide range of material to look at when you want to study the ships. Many thanks for listening. Now, there will certainly be more episodes in this series of freak ships of the 19th century. Next up, we're looking at the crazy cigar ships. Yes, ships shaped like cigars. And we will end with a particularly splendid episode on a unique vessel named the Cleopatra that was designed and built to bring Cleopatra's needle, that ancient Egyptian obelisk on the banks of the Thames, all the way from Alexandria in Egypt to London. And that's coming your way soon. This podcast was brought to you as ever from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. So please see what both of those wonderful institutions are up to. You can find the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk where you can join and I would urge you all to do so. And you can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. Please find the Mariner's Mirror podcast on social media. Please tell everyone you meet in the street all about us. Please leave us a review on iTunes. If you leave us a five-star review, I will be certain to read it out. And do please check out the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel.